Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Scott Moore. He's a co-founder and head of community at Gitcoin, which is an open source platform for building public goods and getting paid for it. So welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So before we dive into Gitcoin, I want to know a little bit more about your background and how you got into crypto. So take us all the way back to when you first heard about crypto. What was it that caught your attention and how did you start learning about it? I actually got in crypto quite a long time ago now, in 2015, when I guess I kind of started realizing that my job in finance, which was doing this sort of machine learning for a lender at the time, was really not super fulfilling and was ultimately kind of contributing to a lot of problems with the, I'm, I'm in Canada and Toronto, like the Canadian economy. What I realized is that, you know, there should be better systems out there. There should be more sort of efficient ways to rally lending or, you know, equity financing. And I kind of got into it from there. But before that, I actually even did a bit of work in sort of like the political science and math space. That was my university sort of like combination, which was like all over the place. And, you know, ultimately that led me to do a thesis sort of around like these voting systems, kind of like a comparison of different systems in the Canadian political context. And I was kind of really interested I guess at first in, hey, how can I transition these like financial skills into a more interesting sort of role? And then I realized like, wait, actually all this political science works, like work really applies to what's happening here at a broader scale. And fortunately, a lot of the early folks in the Ethereum ecosystem at the time really held those sort of like philosophies close to them and like kind of shared that ethos very openly. That really made me realize what I should think about doing is creating systems for like sharing and coordinating value. And like the first project I started was this thing, Venture Equity Exchange, which no one really remembers, but like there was sort of like MakerDAO at the time, you know, Venture Equity Exchange with this really small thing by comparison. But funny enough, Andy Millenius, who was doing a lot of the technical work at Maker at the time, was actually a member of our project as well at the time. And we ended up kind of trying to build this system of equity exchange between projects. So you could almost create like a kind of founder collective. And we sort of got to a certain point with that where we had a bit of like traction and we, we had like an MVP of what we wanted to build. But then I don't know for you know the audience if they're super familiar with the DAO hack. I think a lot of people at this point are and like that happened. People didn't really want to talk about DAOs anymore. And so we promptly just decided like, okay, you know, we're going to move on from there. It was, you know, it didn't help necessarily that the CTO was was kind of like realizing the immutability problems and kind of leaned more on the ETH Classic side at that time. And I kind of leaned more on the, the Ethereum should be a consensus mechanism, you know, it should be governed by the community sort of side of things. And so, yeah, from there, I kind of started just working on a variety of random sort of like projects in that same vein. Um, a lot of the 2017 era was like ICOs, as I think people remember. So like, I started doing a lot of work trying to um, create rating systems to figure out, is this actually a legitimate project? And there were a lot of really fun kind of like essays that I got to write. I, I, don't, I kind of ghost wrote those at the time. Um, and then I just started kind of like thinking about what the next project would be for me to get involved in and kind of stumbled across this idea for like creating DAOs out of basically GitHub repositories called GitToken. It was very, very overcomplicated, very overengineered. And so uh, when Kevin told me about what his idea was for Gitcoin, we sort of both realized like we should really just join forces here and we should work on this together. Kevin, I think, is like really the core founder of, of, of Gitcoin. I'm kind of like the founder of like oddly enough, like GitToken, like we have like this like very similar naming. And then, you know, I kind of decided to just join him as a co-founder, focus on Gitcoin and, and focus on like, I think one thing that like Kevin really understood well was iterating with users um, and iterating like on like real problems that like people in the community were facing at the time. 
that was really my start with, with sort of where I am now. It's like, you know, a wild journey actually to think about like the fact that it's almost six years. Yeah. That is a fascinating backstory. I didn't realize that you came from such, you know, I guess diverse and like non-technical backgrounds because I tend to think like, oh, everybody in Gitcoin is, you know, on the technical side, but coming from poli sci and math is definitely an interesting route. So we're going to be talking a lot about DAOs and you've already brought it up a few times. So I think, why don't we set the stage first for listeners who are maybe new to the space or don't fully understand what a DAO is, a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, Can you start by just giving, you know, like a very basic definition of what a DAO is to help people understand that? Also curious to know too, like what are some of your favorite sources in the space to learn more about DAOs? Because you're one of my favorite sources to learn about DAOs. So I always want to know like for my favorite sources, who are their sources? Um, And this can be like blogs or newsletters or people on Twitter or anything. DAOs are really interesting because they're, it's very difficult to like describe one definition for like a DAO that like everyone will agree on. Right now, there's so many different ways to think about how we organize, like how we organize basically as, as, you know, collectives. That's really what like fundamentally at like the very base layer DAOs are trying to do. I would say, you know, right now, the most common sort of use case or idea is like you have a smart contract, which, you know, or even a multi-sig and is safe, something like that. You have a certain number of people who have access to, you know, vote on proposals that go through that entity to vote on what happens to funds that go through that entity. Um, some of that is very soft decision making. It takes place in like a chat channel like Telegram or Discord. Some of that is very like intense on-chain decision making that takes place via like even like a compound governor alpha type contract, all these like more complicated versions of DAOs that exist today. At its core, really like all those functions are just how can we coordinate value together in a way that's decentralized that's like doesn't require us to know anything about each other necessarily and that doesn't require us to trust necessarily any third party and it can all be done as a result of those things in this kind of totally digital way one of the beautiful parts about that to me is that it almost creates this like metaverse level um sense of like community like institutions to me, that's something that didn't really exist before. You had, you know, governments, you had corporate actors, and like they had kind of operated in the physical world to some extent. And to me, this is the natural extension of that, where we're all sort of operating in the digital world. Really, humans coordinating value online is maybe like the tagline for someone who doesn't really know why this is so interesting. I would recommend looking at like, if you're really new to the space, like Party DAO is a great example right now of something that's happening in that space. Um, I would recommend looking at some of the work that Zora is doing. I would, of course, recommend looking at Gitcoin, which we'll get into, um, which has recently sort of become a DAO. There's a lot of other examples out there just of kind of surprisingly, you know, fast moving and like really, really different institutions that have all evolved around this concept. So anyway, I'll stop there. Otherwise, I'll keep going. Yeah, that's great. And I I think to fully set the stage for this conversation around DAOs, and we're going to talk about Gitcoin DAO later too, we also need to talk about the other side of DAOs, which is like what's not working. And so obviously right now, you know, there are a very limited number of DAOs, like you just rattled off a, a good number of them. But what is preventing DAOs from being mainstream today? Like what are some of the major obstacles that we have to overcome before DAOs can be everywhere in our lives? I think a lot of the limitations right now come down to the technology. You know, we are very, very early in the life cycle of Ethereum. If you look at like the early internet, a lot of people make this analogy. The early internet was really um, like a 20 year cycle in a lot of ways, like probably a bit longer, you know, even depending on like how you think about it. Early 90s was an entire era. And then it wasn't really until the sort of like mid 2010s that people like really started ubiquitously using this in their daily lives. So the more interesting sort of like way to frame what's happening here is that, you know, DAOs really are like pretty much where the like early internet was in like the GeoCities age. That was like a really cool era. I don't know, like for, for people that had some context around that. But like it was certainly kind of janky to use. It like wasn't really like 
fully clear exactly where you would want to like go with your GeoCities page or with like, you know, an online forum that you were creating. Increasingly, those things turned into like the major institutions and major sort of ideas that we have today. You know, I was going to mention like, like Facebook is an example of that. I think it's probably like an example of like an unfortunate reality of where we ended up in, in what that world could have been. And, you know, DAOs hopefully are sort of a reimagining of that back to um, a more sort of like democratic or community community owned and managed um, sort of internet. Technology is the one barrier. Um, I think education is another barrier. Um, people don't really know what this concept is yet, similarly to that, that era. And I think we also really lack to some degree, you know, a clear understanding of what social norms we want to have with each other in this like metaverse context. Because in some ways, um, and I guess I wrote about this a little bit, like we're sort of becoming like digital citizens uh, in a sense. Citizens has like different connotations. So like, I mean, just use that flexibly as a term. But like we're becoming digital citizens in a sense that, you know, we need to like, if we're going to have governance of the internet, of like these different projects or institutions that we rely on, we're going to need to figure out what kind of rules we have around voting with each other. We're going to need to figure out what kind of like norms we set around what kinds of things, you know, we, we want these institutions to even do. And I think to some degree, because we're all so early in that social phase of things, there's also a lot of complexity around like what we even want those things to, to be. So there's, there's a few barriers, right? Like, but those are the three main ones, I think, like technological, educational, and then, and then social at the moment. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there are definitely so many questions left to be answered. And that's also why I'm curious about when you and uh, Kevin first started Gitcoin, what was your thinking around like how you wanted to answer those, some of those questions that you you just posed? So actually Gitcoin really started as it was a very simple premise at the, at the start, which was let's figure out a way for anyone to work for the open internet. And we both sort of realized, you know, there were ways to think about this from a really broad macro perspective. Like what if we created these entire organizations um, that like each had their own, what I was doing at the time was like, let's append these sort of reward structures to GitHub repos. Let's figure out a way to like tally those rewards up and then we'll like auction them off. People will say, oh, like I really care about, for example, what this Python package is doing. I'll put some money into this auction mechanism We'll sort of reward people in these like with these you know tokens that now are like accruing value through this mechanism. That's like a very like top-down way to think about it. It's like very like heavy. And so when I was saying earlier, Kevin took a very pragmatic approach to things. We started with just a bounties product, which was let's let anyone work on just like one small issue at a time. And like let's let them start that, you know, that process of learning what it means to work in an online culture in like sort of an open source you know, fashion. Um, and let's start with people who already kind of get that, right? Like a lot of open source developers from like years and years back, open source as a concept has existed well before crypto. And like that sort of culture and ethos is very amenable to people collaborating online very like, you know, functionally together. But the problem is that at least historically, and I think it's sort of like the key problem that we've been trying to solve, like none of that is really funded. And like, Part of that is that open source software historically has sort of repudiated the idea of, you know, money, like money is somehow bad. It somehow like taints the idea of what you're doing with your software. Um, everything should just be totally free. Um, and then on the other hand, there's been just like a lot of mechanism, sort of like technical barriers to it. Um, and the technical barriers are like, hey, if I want to send money to someone in, you know, let's let's say like, you know, um, in Lagos, and I want to find a way for them to work on open source. I really like don't have a good way to do that. Like it's going to take me a lot of work to like set something up to do that effectively. And this kind of creates a global system. Like Ethereum really is a global system for those sorts of like payments. I think it's more than that. Like I mean, I, I but like that's one way to frame it. So I think that was the starting point. But eventually, what we realized is like people increasingly kind of got hooked on the idea of doing these individual issues, figuring out how to get involved in projects online and increasingly realized, wait, like, and this is one of the best parts to me is like, Hey, if I can get paid for working on this stuff, 
I don't need to necessarily keep my full-time job working on like whatever bank software that I'm working on and actually just work on like stuff that I care about. And so that's something that increasingly was, you know, a motivation for us creating Gitcoin grants originally and for creating these sort of hackathon models that we come up with. And each of those kind of presents to some degree a new way for developers to like take their relationship with open source software to the next step. And, you know, now we have kernel as well, which um, Vivek has done an amazing job running. I would really, one thing to note is like, it wasn't just us two, like Kevin and I, like in, in this process, Vivek was like an instrumental part of really growing everything, everything operationally. And now kernel has sort of like become uh, a hub for all the people who have gotten to a certain level of understanding with crypto and really want to like found something long term. And so we have actually, I think at this point, almost a thousand fellows that have gone through the program, which is wild to think about. And that has led to over like, I think it might be over $20 million of funding from a, a variety of DAOs and VCs and other folks in the crypto space who do these investments. That has created like the reason I'm, it sounds a bit like a bit of a rant. The point is that like someone started from doing just like one issue, like taking the first step to really like becoming a fully fledged member of this digital community. And I think that's like the really powerful thing. Um, that whole like kind of funnel, so to speak, of how do I start to becoming you know a founder? You guys have done such a good job of creating this open source community, and it really is that. And I think that's like the point you're getting after as well is that so many people that are part of the community have come up and created these other awesome programs like Kernel in it. And so one question I had for you, and this like might be a more philosophical question around just like open source and how does it actually work and how do public goods actually work and how do we, you know, solve for some of the problems surrounding that. But let's just start with open source. So why don't we start by just talking about like some of the some of the advantages of open source and then some of the risks that you might face as well. So open source software is I think the biggest advantage is that we have the ability to create like more composable systems. Historically, we didn't really have a a way to like build something through like these Legos, we had to just build everything from scratch. And that meant that like building any kind of application took a really long time, right? And then from there, we realized like we can just build these Legos on top of Legos on top of Legos. And now we're at the point where we can just spin up like a create React app, like a web page, like a very like functional web app in like less than a day. It shouldn't be that easy, actually. Like, it should actually be, like, a lot more complicated than that. But because of the work, like, we're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants because of the work they've done, we have the ability to just very functionally and, like, kind of simply build these 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 tools that we need. It's almost hard to think about all the advantages because the layers of open source software at this point go so far down. We just have so many different, like, types of open source software that we use that... It's like, okay, well, like, we're, how far down the stack do you go? You've got like open source software at the level of like, basically just like spin up your application, spin up your like the, the service that you're looking to do, use immediately. You've got like all the way down to like open SSL or like these really obscure, like kind of like base layer libraries. Leftpad is kind of a trivial, like funny example of that in the JavaScript ecosystem. At each level of like complexity, all of these things help us basically build software faster, more efficiently, et cetera. The only disadvantage that I mentioned is that essentially open source kind of like does have this funding problem, right? And like maintainers burn out constantly. It's like not a new problem. It's happened for like the last 20 years. And as a result, all of these maintainers like have to keep getting replaced. Someone else has to come in with like fresh eyes and be like, I'm really ready to like work on this. And I, I don't think that's going to be sustainable forever. I don't think you're always going to have like this enthusiasm um, that can just like, you know, in like be sustained in this kind of like immovable way. There's eventually going to be some kind of like potential, I think, burnout that creates real risks. And like th that's happened before. OpenSSL is a great example of this. Natty Eggball and others have written about this extensively. Um, 
But, you know, when, when those burnouts happen, sometimes there are security risks. Like people will inevitably, you know, forget to fix one potential vulnerability because they were working on this nights and weekends as like one person, you know, in their basement and that's, that's it. So I think ultimately, you know, that problem isn't, you know, a long-term problem. That problem is solved by funding, but it is something to like keep in mind. Now, at this point, the idea that we would just say, well, oh, that's a big risk. Let's like not worry about open source software anymore. We're, we're way past that point. We're like 15 years past that point. Like there's no world in which we're going to just stop using the open source software we have. So uh, anyone listening who's like, well, why don't we just like not worry about those risks? Like you can't anymore. The only way, you know, through this is, is forward to make sure that those maintainers have the, you know, resources they need to be successful. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's sort of on the builder side. And then there's the other side of that, which is the consumers of the open source software, you know, of public goods in general. And I think there are, you know, some problems that we face on that side as well. And I, I think like a big one is just how do you get people to pay for public goods and how do you prevent free riders from, you know, just taking advantage of it without contributing and giving back? And that's the problem that's being like, years and years in the making. I think from my perspective, open source software has historically mostly solved this by people being like, again, like just very, very persistent. They, they haven't cared about the fact that they don't have funding. They haven't cared about the fact that like they are understaffed in terms of what they're trying to build and they've just persisted. I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of experiments arise um, around obviously donations. Like there's being, you know, even what we're doing to some degree, there's like, Donations on the bounty side, there's donations on the grant side. GitHub sponsors is like more of a web two solution to this, which is like any repo can have like its own sort of like web two funding model. Open source, you know, collective is another example. But I think increasingly we need to find ways to, and like this is to me the beauty of web three and, and what Ethereum does, is like we need to create ways to incentivize people to care about that infrastructure in the first place. And so Ethereum really is like a shared community currency when you think about it, right? And like I talked earlier about the idea of like us being digital citizens. Well, like there's sort of like shared currency, shared culture, shared like values. Like that currency is ETH in like the case of the Ethereum ecosystem. And like that really provides this base layer for everyone to kind of rally around. And there's a great post that Matt Stevenson just wrote that I, I kind of helped out with. And one of the things he talks about in that post is the sort of tragedy, like there's a tragedy of the commons, but there's like the kind of theoretical underpinning and framing of that, which is like, you know, let's suppose you're at a concert, everyone is enjoying the view, but like they want to like be able to stand up to see better. So one person stands up, the person behind them stands up and they just keep going until eventually everyone is standing. Now, like you would think, and that's obviously an unsustainable state, you would think that like that would be everyone by the end of it. But what's really interesting is that there's always like 10% in like these studies that like don't uh, stand up. They just like stay sitting. <laughs> That's like clearly not good for them, but like they're not giving in to this like overall like kind of um, cynicism that like there's not anything that can be done about these problems. And the other beauty of this like sort of um, these experiments is that they show when you reset the game, okay, like like you just like tell everyone sit down again in these in these settings, the same thing will happen again. So there's like a really good part of that, which is that like, okay, there's clearly this base layer, like this baseline of the population that will like always do things for the right reason. But like, and, and you can reset these sort of scenarios in a way that hopefully like gives people the ability to like try again. And then the downside is that like, generally speaking, people run into the same problems every single time that like this happens. But the community currency angle of what we're doing is, is really to me what changes that because you're, you're kind of in this, like, to, you know, really stretch this analogy. Like, you're paying people to stay sitting down in this case because they basically really benefit if they do. And, and like, in the open source software context, like, in the Ethereum context, like, if you fund ETH2 development, for example, like, that is really good for you if you are participating in the Ethereum ecosystem, if you're being paid in ETH, if you hold any ETH, that creates this shared incentive. So for the, you know, maybe 10% is like the lowest like threshold of what we expect in terms of that population that stays sitting. 
for the other like 90% or maybe like 80%, 70% that like will sometimes stand up, sometimes will stay sitting, you can actually incentivize them to act in the best interest of the overall community. And that to me is like something that did not exist in Web2 and like fundamentally changes the donation model that was, you know, pretty much powering open source software between now and then, between basically before Web3 and Ethereum. So I, I don't think we're there in terms of how this applies to broader open source. I don't think we've like figured out, you know, how we extend the concern people have about, you know, Ethereum to the concern that people have about the broader open source software community. But I think we can get there. I think there's a way to like convince people that like, if we don't have JavaScript, like just like very basic, like if we don't have any of these tools that like we're using in the Ethereum ecosystem that have nothing to do with Ethereum, we can't keep building it. It's going to be much harder to keep building it. There's tools that rely on these other like basically pieces of infrastructure that have nothing to do with Ethereum. I guess the point is really like when you think about it, even if it seems like something has nothing to do with Ethereum and open source software, it does. And so, you know, increasingly, I, that's what makes me optimistic that we'll end up moving to this world where not just core Ethereum infrastructure is funded, um, but also, you know, broader open source is funded through these Web3 mechanisms as well. Yeah, for sure. Then when you think about where Gitcoin is today, where on that spectrum of moving between Web2 and Web3 would you say that it falls in terms of how you guys are operating, your overall ethos, and also your community? I definitely think right now, like in terms of our technology, we're very much like Web 2.5, right? I mean, we facilitate the transfer of crypto. We, well, we we don't, we like provide like a platform that allows others to like basically do that. But we, we basically increasingly are moving that to the community and like decentralizing the tools and the technology that we're using. And so, you know, we've always been a community first project. Like we've always been very like actively listening to and like trying to consider the input of the community, but we've always had the final say in those decisions. And so, yeah, the one step for us is really to like move to, you know, a level in which what we're building is more sort of like directly community owned where they have the final say um, and like where they're building the technology with us. And then on the other hand, we want them to have like almost social kind of like the feeling of, you know, social norms being shaped by the community, not just us. So for example, like Gitcoin Grants, Gitcoin Grants is a lot to dive into, by the way, for those that don't know, like it's not just us giving grants to projects, but it uses this matching pool method Vitalik came up with uh, along with Coinwell and Zoe Hitzig called quadratic funding. And for anyone who doesn't know, like quadratic funding is basically like a democratic way to distribute funds from a matching pool based on community sentiment. So if you have, for example, one project with uh, two $4 donations, one project with eight $1 donations, the matching amount for the former project, like naively, there's some complexity here, would be $16, whereas the matching amount for the other project would be $64. And the difference between those is not the dollar amounts donated the, the same in those examples, but like it's the number of people that are contributing to them signaling their interest. And so that mechanism is like more democratic and kind of provides a way for the community to feel like their input is being heard. One of the consequences of that, just like to go back to the question is like, we need to determine what public goods are allowed to be funded by this mechanism. We need to determine what kind of matching pools are assigned to what categories of public goods. We need to decide one, one thing you might recognize like is if someone just breaks up their account into many different accounts, they find like a way to like civil attack the system as it's called they can really do a lot of damage. And so, you know, we need to also prevent civil attacks and find ways to improve identity mechanisms in a decentralized way. All of those things we want the community to set the norms for. We don't want to just mandate how those things should, should function because eventually the way that this should operate is that the community is, is basically the team. The community is trying to decide together what public goods in Ethereum are funded. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do there, but I, I think we're making progress. Yeah, and I think that ties really well into uh, the most recent thing that you've 
done, which is launch the GTC coin and Gitcoin DAO. So, which first of all, congrats on that. That was a huge success. It was awesome. Like the way that it was set up and how it walked users through the journey and stuff was really, really, really cool stuff. But for people who aren't familiar or, you know, didn't catch the news recently, can you explain what Gitcoin DAO is? What was the overall mission? Like, why did you guys create this? Yeah. So, I mean, it really goes back to that community orient- like orientation. We, we don't want to just like go from zero to one. We don't want to be like, now we're a DAO. Now we're like entirely like owned by the community. I think that's kind of disingenuous. Like we're really like taking the first step, nothing with the question, by the way, just like more, you know, it's important to note that like DAOs take time is basically the point. The GTC launch was part of that, right? The GTC launch was like kind of our first step to reward people who had previously participated, either they'd done bounties, they'd done grants, um, they funded the matching pool, giving them the chance to participate in governance and rewarding them with governance rights that could be used basically to decide things like what public goods should be funded, to decide things like what the anti-civil sort of policies and identity mechanisms that we use should be. It's like our sort of like second chapter. It's a way for us to try to, you know, ensure that in five years time, we can say that we are like confidently entirely a community owned project and a community managed project. And that, you know, therefore the future of public goods in Ethereum, like to the extent that Gitcoin is is involved in that, it's certainly our mission and we don't intend to be the only project doing this, but that, you know, the future of public goods to the extent we can impact them is community managed. Um, We don't want to be the arbiters of like that, you know, no one should, if we're creating shared infrastructure that we all rely on, no one should own that infrastructure. No one should like, you know, unilaterally, I, I say, I should say own that infrastructure and like determine its, its future. Really the GTC launch for now is, it's been really, really interesting to see what people are sort of voting on already. Like one really wild example is like this Akita situation, which like is a lot to get into. Um, but the mission of, of this is to give people more decision-making power over over public goods. Got it, got it. And so for people who want to get involved, buy some GTC coins, how can they get involved? So so there's there's no way to buy GTC actually, which is an important point. Like there's no real like market that's developed or anything like that. And like the intention of the project is entirely to to govern the platform. Really, we we want to make sure that people are actually like participating versus speculating and getting like really involved in this sort of like mission around public goods funding. The, I think biggest way to get involved would be simply to like use the platform. Like, you know, I expect, and we, we can't know this for sure, but like, I would think that, you know, if the community wants more people to be governing the platform, in addition to those that have already received tokens, like, I would think that they might want to like do votes around how future sort of like folks are able to get, get a hold of those tokens. You know, I would just like get involved, like keep an eye on what's happening on the gov.getcoin.co forum, um, join our discord. I would really recommend anyone who is interested in this subject, like read through Vitalik's blog, read through like all the different writing that's out there on the subject, because I think, you know, it's not just about Gitcoin. Like we are one project that's on this mission, but there's like the build guild that Austin Griffith is working on. There's like CLR fund, which is like um, Orrin McMillan's work. There's common stack, Griff Green's work, radical um, LA and, and um, Abby and others. And all these projects, um, I've missed probably some and apologies are working towards the same goal of trying to fund our shared infrastructure. And so, yeah, like, those are ways I would start. Um, but like, if you're new to Ethereum, it is a very welcoming community and you can join any of these projects. You can get involved in their discord and like people will be down to help you. People will be down to guide you in the right direction. Um, which again is kind of one of the beautiful parts of the shared currency. Yeah, for sure. And one thing you mentioned too, is when, uh, with the token distribution of GTC was distributed to people who were involved in projects, people who provided funding. Can you explain like how, you establish this like token distribution system or like how the tokenomics work around GTC? We actually were partly inspired by, and, and we had kind of like thought about this, you know, on our own before, but by what Uniswap had done. And I think there's a, 
bit of a difference in what we ended up doing because Uniswap was funding people who were obviously using Uniswap. And that's like a lot of people were creating LP positions and were like doing a lot of DeFi related um, sort of like work. But what we realized is, you know, everyone who has participated on Gitcoin so far has really been participating through their labor, not their capital. They've been participating by like doing real work and like putting in putting in that effort. And I think from my perspective, that's like, you know, part of what made us realize like we need to make sure that the people who are, you know, governing this platform are people who have like shown that they really care about what's happening. They have a vested interest in it because they've worked on it before. They've worked with the platform and with us before. Part of the ethos was, well, we want individuals, you know, to be proportionally rewarded according to, you know, their individual contributions, the number of bounties they've done, the number of donations they've done. But we should also consider the magnitude of those things. Like if someone's donating a million dollars to, you know, the public goods matching pool, we want to make sure that that is like taken into consideration. So we kind of had two uh, pools of sorts. Um, we had a few different ones, but like the two sort of main ones were like, how active were you? Like how much work did you really like contribute over what period of time? And then how much really like value did you, did you generate or like kind of like provide to public goods through that? So that was like the initial distribution. And like, um, I think that's for us so far being really, really rewarding to see play out um, because all the people who are now like top delegates are people that like, I, I kind of like can point to and I'm like, Oh, I remember that person. Like they were doing this on like the platform at this point. I'm like, Oh, I remember this person. And so that's just being really cool personally to see. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I'm curious too, like what are some of the coolest projects that you've seen be built out on Gitcoin? And then like also looking ahead to the future, like what are some projects that you would like to see be built out? I think one project that really comes to mind is, which is not not strictly like totally fair, but like Uniswap actually had a Gitcoin grant. Um, yeah, they were funded by the EF as well. And obviously they've become a huge success. Like it's been kind of interesting to see them go from getting just like a small amount of grant money to really becoming like, a like multi-billion dollar project at this point. But the ones that really stand out to me are probably more projects that um, are like purely kind of like infrastructure layer stuff that we don't really think about that much, but like really like all again, rely on like Ethers, JS, Prismatic Labs, like other ETH2 clients as well. Sam Sun's work in White Hat hacking, like before he was taken on by Paradigm, like he was uh, kind of getting uh, this like quadratic freelancer grant. Um, Austin Griffith as well, before he was uh, part of the Ethereum Foundation, was getting a grant for his developer relations sort of work this way. And then like just a, a slew of like technologies that I think like most projects rely on now, like Log Connect, like um, people are increasingly using DAP Node, which is a really cool sort of project for people to check out. Things like TurboGeth. Um, there's like a lot to list that like, I, I can't list them all obviously, those ones really stand out to me because it's it's very clear. You can really see the impact that they're having now. Like Rainbow Wallet, like heavily relies on Wallet Connect. And like most people that are coming into the space now, I think really don't know that, um, which is okay. Like they don't need to know that. It's really, for me personally, like rewarding to see that like that's, that's something that new user, users are able to like um, actually find value in. I'm sure there's others that I'm missing, but I'll, I'll stop there uh, just to make sure I don't go too far. Yeah. And then looking ahead to the future, are there any projects that you have in mind that you'd love to see a team, you know, people in the community build out? That's a big question. Like there's a lot of developer relations sort of like, like developer experience stuff that I think could use work in Ethereum. I know um, the Ethereum Foundation is really actively working on this, but you know, anything that improves like, like hard hat is a good example of this. They're another grantee or, you know, tooling that improves the experience of the developer getting started in the space. Um, tutorials, Ethereum tutorials, like there's a bunch that are on ETH.org, but there's more that could be done there to make sure that a new you know, developer coming in really understands what's happening. I think there's a lot more, you know, in general education to be done around the space. So like really like we're not just like technology or like, you know, infrastructure grants. Like we also like this, this platform has like an entire community section and that community section is really geared towards like, you know, uh, Week in Ethereum, like Bankless had a had a newsletter up there as well. 
things like the Defiant. Like these are, I think, really useful resources for people that um, want to just understand on a constant basis what's happening in the ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, projects like that, I think, are increasingly important. And then to be honest, like, I would just say, even if you're just trying to like build um, like something that you think is a really cool novel application in the space, I would recommend just trying out a grant, seeing if people like really want to support your idea. Because one thing that we've noticed, which is interesting, is like, it's not just the money that you get. It's also the community signal and support. And that includes like people have found other like developers or like even co-founders to like work with through this process. That is sometimes even more valuable than like getting the grant money in the first place. So there's a lot uh, to be built still. Um, anything that you can think of is still like really an option in Ethereum for the platform. Um, but those are a few ideas. Yeah, for sure. I'm super excited to see where Gitcoin goes in the future and all the new projects that get built with Gitcoin. Um, to sort of wrap up this conversation about Gitcoin, I have a few questions from the community. A lot of these are kind of just, you know, fun, silly questions. Uh, this is from the Twitter community. So first, Suji Yan wants to know, is Gitcoin cat or dog people? I, I know Suji pretty well because um, he is donated through Maskbook to uh, the matching pool. But also there's a bit of this on Vitalik's blog, but he, um, their, their sort of project ended up doing a donation, an airdrop back to contributors um, that ended up like creating this whole like civil attack system that sort of like emerged in a way we didn't expect. We've talked a lot about both those things. And I, I would actually recommend people look at that like sort of um, grants. I think it was the grants round nine review um, where this happened um, on, on Vitalik's blog. Um, but yeah, to answer the question, that's like just giving me time to think. I think both really, like I, I would say like personally, um, I am like slightly biased towards dogs only because I grew up with like dogs. If they're okay building, you know, on, on Ethereum, if they can, if they can code, then all of them are, are good. Um, yeah, I'll go with dogs personally. I don't know if I can answer for the whole team there. Okay, that's fair. I think that's fair. All right. And then Simona Pop has a few questions. The first one is, will you ever get a tattoo with public goods are good? <laughs> oh, man, I actually should think about it. I, I don't think I'm totally opposed to the idea. So like, I won't rule it out. Maybe if we ever go back to Tokyo again, um, when the pandemic is over, that could be an option. So I'll leave it on a question mark. But um, nice, nice. Well, well so I guess for anybody listening who's an artist, if you want to uh, send a mock-up of public goods are good to Scott on Twitter, maybe if something catches his eye, he'll be more motivated to do it. <laughs> um, and then Simona also <laughs> wants to know, do you miss Dean Eigenman terribly? Yes. We we traveled together a lot in the last couple of years. So Dean and I definitely have history there. And He's also just been like a really great developer in the space, honestly. Like if you check out some of the work he's done with Status and others, awesome overall like developer and like contributor to the ecosystem. So both personally and and like I guess to some extent professionally, like I yeah, definitely, definitely want to see him again. Awesome. Shout out Dean Eigenman. And then last question, this one's a bit more meta. Where will we all be in two years? I'm not sure if she means with like Web3 or just in life in general, the universe. I think we're all going to be in uh, in Miami. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're all <laughs> going to be in the metaverse, I think, at that point. What that means, practically speaking, I mean, is, is you know, question mark. But like, I really do think in, in a couple of years, we'll be in a at a point where like most of the infrastructure that we, you know, need for, for ETH2 is going to be like out there. We're going to be in like a proof of stake world. We're going to be in a world where, uh, which is really important, by the way, like for, for folks that are being concerned about like any of the climate implications, like that like reduces like all of the climate implications of, uh, of, of Ethereum at least, which is awesome. We'll, we'll be therefore like through these, the, these sorts of tools um, and through like some of the work that's happening with MEV as well. And we're like, I think where a lot of the public goods infrastructure that Ethereum and like ETH2 relies on will be pretty well funded. I, I'm like pretty optimistic about like, some of the directions we're taking it. We didn't really talk a lot about like the MEV stuff that's happening. Um, like Optimism is doing some work here. Flashbots is doing some great work here. I think that's going to be really important. But but maybe Miami, maybe also Miami. Who knows? Could could be Miami. 
Miami and the metaverse. That's where we'll all be in two years. All right. So to wrap this up, I've got a couple of tweets for you that you tweeted. Um, and I, I'm going to give you a chance to explain what you meant by these. And so the first one I have is from May 27th. This is a quote tweet of uh, this job description that Gitcoin posted for a meme artist slash shit poster and community manager. I'm sure everybody has seen that. And you just quote tweeted it and said, wow, this really blew up. Welcome to crypto, everyone. So like, where do you see jobs being in the future? Like for kids that are in like high school, you know, right now, like going to college or thinking about like what to do after school, what is like your career advice for them? Or like what skills should they be picking up? Like what jobs are going to be out there in the future? It's super interesting to me that that blew up because like, I've kind of thought about the idea of like marketing and PR as defunct, like for a while, like even beyond crypto, like it just kind of always felt very forced to me. There's a risk of like that post itself being like a fellow kid sort of like post. I like don't like claim that like that's like somehow like the super like, you know, um, hip. Like I don't I'm not a very like hip person. The overall like goal of that post was like, especially with like just like shit poster was just to be like, look, in the in crypto, you just get involved in communities. You like hang out. You like basically just like chat with people. You like vibe with people. You get a sense of what everyone's trying to accomplish you work with them to like coordinate and like help them accomplish that. That's really what people are doing when they're memeing, when they're like creating like random Twitter threads and like posting stuff on Discord or like Telegram channels. It's for the meme of it. That also is like kind of true in terms of what we're doing, where we're building this, like this shared infrastructure, all the stuff we're doing in Ethereum, like we're building that to project a certain view of the world and like make it a reality. This was just a way to be like, look, you don't have to be, I get into this like habit too. Like you don't have to be like super serious about that. You can just like, kind of like, if, if you have something to contribute, you can like, you know, and you have our passion and care about like those causes, you can just get involved in them. And, you know, you don't need to be like a PR expert or like a marketing expert. You can just be really good at organizing communities, um, which is something that like a lot of decentralized projects have realized for a while, even beyond crypto, like secure scuttlebutt, like that protocol, like all these other like open source sort of like projects before web three, but that's all I really meant by it. And it's kind of turned into this whole thing in, in web two, just about when you start to mess with people's expectations of titles, everyone has a frame of reference for like how they view the world. And when you like kind of mess with that frame of reference a bit, it really like confuses people. So it's been kind of cool to see that play out as well. Yeah, 100%. I would love to see more of that happening too and see that become more of a norm instead of like something so shocking like it was. All right, and I've got one more tweet for you. This one's from April 21st, 2021. This is also a quote tweet of a tweet from Legion about the universal creative income. And you said, as the amount of time we spend in the metaverse grows, building a sense of civic duty towards creators online will only become more important. The concept of a universal creative income offers a way to do just that. So excited to see more experiments emerge around this in Web3. So do you want to give you a chance to explain what you meant by all of that? That's a huge, well, it's good that I've kind of touched on some of these things in this conversation. That's a huge topic. Like the overall goal of that tweet, her post was really about like, we have the universal basic income idea, obviously like in meat space, like we've had that idea for years and years and years. What if we created something like that on the internet for online creators? And we hopefully helped web two platforms adopt that like YouTube and Facebook and so forth. Cause I mean, one of the reasons people care a lot about what's happening in web three um, on the creator side is that they've been like kind of mistreated for years, for decades at this point. And it's, it's become increasingly important for them to figure out like, okay, how can I actually like have more relationship with my audience or my like community? How can I like make sure that I'm earning a fair share of what I'm actually bringing in for the organization? And so the universal creator of income, she said creative, not creator, right? Yeah. She said creative, universal creative income. Yeah. But like the point of, yeah, of this is really, okay, let's experiment not just around like what we're doing with Gitcoin. Let's not just experiment around like these individual mechanisms that like cover a certain group of creators. Like we, people still have to put up a grant and like apply and like it's an open process, but like people still have to like go through the work of doing this. If we just dropped funds to like everyone who's basically doing creative work on the internet, what would that world look like? And for me, I, my point, I guess, was like, you know, to me, that's 
part of the experimentation we should be doing around the shared norms and shared civic duty that we all want to have each other and have with each other in this like digital world. I'm actually really optimistic about what, like proof of humanity is doing on this front there um, that Santi is running. There's a few other projects that are in the space that are like working on this sort of like online creative or like even just like universal basic income. It kind of goes back to like the very beginning of the conversation. Like what are the norms that we're setting with each other from my perspective? And maybe I'm wrong. Like, you know, we're missing the importance of where we are in terms of like, we're at a pinnacle, like key point in, in the development of like our online identities and like relationships with, with each other, how we set those norms and set those principles with each other now, I think will reverberate for years and years to come. So just more experiments around that is like, is like the call. And I'm really glad that she wrote that post as well. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being here today and telling us all about Gitcoin and the new GTC launch. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also uh, for people who haven't had any exposure to Gitcoin yet and they want to go check it out, what are some of like the initial easy and fun and cool things they can do? Well, so not Scott Moore on Twitter. I'm like not really super active aside from Twitter. Crypto Twitter is like a, if you're not already sort of there, like a necessity, I think, in the space. And like, it is it is chaotic at times, but it is also very like I think interesting. I would say for Gitcoin to start, just like go to Gitcoin.co, take a look at what's there. But like more importantly, I would uh, maybe we can drop a link to the Discord channel or drop a link to the gov.gitcoin.co forum. Both of those places have a lot of materials on like what you can do to get involved in the community, and it's like totally open. There's no barriers. Just feel free to get involved. Awesome. Awesome. We will definitely include a link to the Discord in the show notes so people can click through easily. Thanks again, Scott, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in as always. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.